Thank you, choir. That was a beautiful piece, and the string piece during the offertory was phenomenal. I, I imagine that was a more difficult piece than the prior one when your pastor and the cello player stepped out of that one. I assume that was a little more difficult piece. Just an outsider's observation. Our scripture this morning comes to us from the 8th chapter of the book of Acts, beginning in verse 26. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to that. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. And so he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him, the good news about Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. It's great to be back with you. I was uh, talking with Ben Mathis on the drive over here, and he sends his greetings. Um, Randy, I I, want to be clear, I'm not Ben too. Uh, Nobody wants that role. Uh, I'm clearly Mike, and uh, I have the privilege as of about two years ago of stepping into the executive director role of Rivers of the World. Ben was promoted to the old man of Roe. I told the Sunday School group earlier that was a promotion, not a demotion. That was Ben's title, Ben's role, and it's not the younger guy pushing the old man out. That's a title and a job description that he wrote and he embraced and he loves, and he and I are working together to collaborate for the gospel in extraordinary ways. So as you can imagine, uh, my role requires that I do a lot of traveling. I was recently in the Dominican Republic where we graduated our second class from the Roe Pastor Training School. This church has been involved in that area. Randy has been involved in the teaching of those folks. And those people are now trained and equipped and resourced in preaching and teaching, one-on-one evangelism, discipleship, church planting, all the pieces of being the spiritual leader in the remote areas of the Dominican Republic that they've been called to serve. And so Roe is empowering the next generation, actually this generation, to share the gospel in some of the most difficult places on earth. I was three weeks ago in Nicaragua. We are beginning new work on an area called the Rio Grande de Matagalpa. It's about a seven-hour boat ride and a fast boat after you take two different flights. So it's the most remote area of Nicaragua. There's a 60-mile stretch, 19 communities that nobody else is serving. And so we are beginning a new, holistic, sustainable, scalable model of ministry to help those people move from the extreme poverty that we find them in to eventually self-sustainability and in the process of building relationships and loving on those people of leading them to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. 
tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. I start a new mission trip. I head uh, actually up to Detroit first. That's not the mission trip, um, but it could be. Um, <laughs> I head to Detroit, and then from Detroit, we take a 15-hour flight over to China, and we begin work in China and India. And so I was there about a year ago, and it was the most amazing trip. We flew into Bangalore in southern India, and we got in just after midnight, drove to the mission house, got there about one in the morning, and about four in the morning, they woke us back up, and they said, we're going to worship. Now, when I'm in another country and they say we're going to worship, I get pretty excited about that because worship in the countries that Roe serves is a little bit different than worship here. It's not that they file in and we sing some songs and hear a message and head off to lunch. No, worship in other countries often goes on for hours and hours. And so we drove about four hours outside of Bangalore to the most remote area of India. We gathered with 10 church plant pastors. And in this outdoor worship setting, we had about 800 people praising God and worshiping in the name of Jesus Christ who just two years earlier were either Hindu, Muslim, or atheists. And at the end of that worship time, I got to get into a baptismal pool with another pastor and baptize 65 new Indian believers into the faith. Now that's pretty good stuff. Yeah, we ought to hear an amen to that. Yeah. Now as great as all that stuff is, that's actually not what I came here to talk about this morning. What I wanted us to talk about this morning is divine appointments. Yeah, divine appointments, those situations or circumstances that God either places us in or allows us in to be able to have a potentially life-altering, life-transforming impact on the lives of the people around us. It was January 13, 1982. Air Florida Flight 90 was sitting at a gate at Washington National Airport. D.C. had been experiencing one of the worst snowstorms that it had seen in decades, and there were 79 people on board this plane that were ready to leave the ice and the snow and the cold of D.C. and head down to sunny Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Well, they sat at the gate, they de-iced a couple of times, and finally they got word from the tower that they were approved to push back and begin their flight that afternoon. Well, you know that tractor unit that pushes the plane back? It connected to the front of the plane and started to push the plane back. But there was so much ice and snow that the wheels of that tractor just spun. It couldn't push the weight of the plane back. And so those pilots decided that even though it was against protocol, that they would turn on the reverse thrusters of the engines. I mean, it seemed like such a good idea. Just give that plane a nudge back and they would be on their way. But what they didn't realize is when they turned on those reverse thrusters, that those engines would ingest ice and snow and that the thrust indicator valve on one of the engines would freeze up and would fail to give them an accurate reading on that plane's ability to take off and to fly that day. Well, they taxied down to the end of the runway, and as they sat there, if you were to go back and read the transcript of the conversation between the two pilots like I did, they actually had a conversation between themselves on whether or not it was safe to take that plane off that day in the snowstorm. But the word came down from the tower, Air Florida Flight 90, you are clear for takeoff. And that pilot pushed that throttle down. That plane began to rumble down the runway. And I got to believe that all 79 people on board that plane were thinking to themselves, Florida and sunshine, here we come. And it was only seconds into the flight that everyone on that plane probably realized that something was drastically wrong. You see, that plane began to shake and to shudder. And after only 32 seconds of flight, it came out of the sky. 
It crashed on top of seven cars on the 14th Street Bridge. It careened over the bridge and plunged through the ice into the Potomac River. Now those of you who were around at the time might remember the news reports because rescue crews descended quickly on that scene because the human body can only last for about 30 minutes in that freezing cold, frigid water. 79 people on board that plane, all but five, would lose their lives. Four others would die as a result of the plane crashing on the bridge as well. And then there's Lenny Skutnik. Lenny who? Yeah, Lenny Skutnik. Lenny worked for the U.S. government, for the Department of Budget and Management for the government. And because of the snowstorms that day, the government offices had closed early. And Lenny was walking back home when he saw that plane coming out of the sky, when he heard it crash on top of the 14th Street Bridge and watched as it careened over the bridge through the ice and into the Potomac. Well, Lenny ran to the banks of the Potomac thinking, well, maybe there's something that I could do to be helpful. And he stood there, he would tell rescue crews later, and he fixated on the face of one of those female survivors. And he watched as she went under and fought her way back up. As she flailed to reach the cable from the rescue helicopter, not being able to grab onto that cable. And when she went under for what Lenny thought might be the very last time, and she popped back up, Lenny couldn't take it anymore. And so he reached down, he pulled off his shoes, he peeled off his coat, and in short sleeves and socks, he dove into the Potomac. He swam out to Priscilla Torado. He grabbed her and swam her to shore, saving her life that day. You see, church, Lenny Skutnik had a divine appointment. He was in the right place at the right time, and he had to decide, am I going to be a man of action, or am I going to sit on the sidelines and be a spectator? Our scripture this morning, if you have it, open it back up to Acts 8. Our scripture was the story of Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch. And while you're turning back to that, I want to give you some context around this story. You see, this is the beginning of the early church. There were church plants going on and there were literally hundreds and thousands of people giving their lives to Christ on a daily basis. And so there's this great, uh, great onslaught of growth in the church, and at the same time, the Roman government is feeling threatened, and so there's a lot of persecution in the church as well. If you flip back one chapter to chapter 7, you would read the story of Stephen, the first recorded martyr, Christian martyr in the Bible. If you flip forward, you would read about the Apostle Paul is still Saul at this time, and the Bible tells us that he's breathing out murderous threats against the Christians of his day. And so God shows up to Philip in this story. And he says to Philip, I want you to go from Jerusalem to Samaria. Now Philip was a Jew and Jews hated Samaritans. Now I know that hate is a pretty strong word, but that was probably a pretty accurate description of their feeling toward the Samaritans because if you went back in time seven or eight hundred years the Old Testament Assyrians had come into the northern kingdom of Judah they had overtaken the Israelite people and they had plundered everything they had including their wives and the marriages those half-breed relationships from the marriages between the Assyrians and the remaining Israelite women were the Samaritans And so the Jewish people would literally take the longer, more dangerous route around Samaria just to avoid the Samaritans. And so in this story, an angel of the Lord shows up and he says to Philip, I want you to take the road, the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, 
That is a really bad road. You don't go on that road unless you absolutely have to. But Philip goes obediently. Because God says, I want you to go and I want you to trust my divine plan. Now I want to point out that Philip is not a pastor. He's not seminary trained, but he loves Jesus and he's obedient to God's call on his life. And so he comes up and he meets this chariot. He goes up to the chariot as the Spirit directs him. And you can almost imagine him running alongside this chariot. And he says to the Ethiopian eunuch, do you know what you're reading? And the eunuch says, well, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And so he jumps up into the chariot. He walks him through what he's reading, the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah, the prophecy, the promise that God is going to send a Savior to the world. He explains that that Savior has come in the person of Jesus Christ and that he's come for that eunuch and he leads him to a relationship with Christ. And if you keep reading, they come upon some water and he actually baptizes him into the faith. Divine appointment, obedient response, and God handles the results. And so I've got a question for us this morning. Actually, I've got a question for each of you individually. What's your divine appointment? What's your divine appointment? I mean, have you ever intentionally placed yourself in a situation or a circumstance where you could share your relationship with Jesus with someone else? Well, there are a couple of things that I do to make sure that that happens in my life. The first is, whenever someone asks me how I'm doing, my response is always better than I deserve. Now, I get lots of different feedback from that. Some people will say, well, Reinsel, what did you do wrong that you don't get what you deserve? Other folks will say, don't we all deserve the best? But the, re- the majority of people will say, what do you mean better than you deserve? And that's kind of my open door, my open invitation to be able to share what I deserve and what I get through the grace of God and my relationship with Jesus Christ. It was late one night. I was checking into a Holiday Inn Express. It was nearing midnight. I was preaching the next morning. And I got to confess to you this morning, the very last thing I wanted to do was have a conversation in the Holiday Inn lobby about Jesus. Well, I walked into the lobby and there was no one there. Praise God. I walked up to the desk and no one at the desk. I rang the little bell. The clerk walked up. She looked me in the eye and she said, how you doing? Better than I deserve. She said, what do you mean better than you deserve? And so I kind of walked her quickly through what I deserve and God's grace and how it's impacted my life. And she looked at me. She pointed at me. She said, you know what? I'm not better than I deserve. In fact, I'm a whole lot worse than I deserve. And for literally 20 or 25 minutes, she started to unpack her life. I mean, she told me about a messy divorce she went through because her husband three years earlier had left her family and her daughters and abandoned their family and how her life began to unravel. And how when she reached out to people that she thought were friends in her life, they just weren't there for her the way that she hoped and thought that they should be. And how she reached out to the church and she felt more judged and condemned by the church than loved and embraced. And so for literally 25 minutes, I got to hear her life story. And at the end of that story, I got to take her hands at the desk of that Holiday Inn Express. And I got to pray with her to begin a new relationship with Christ. To get a do-over, to start over, and to begin a relationship that probably today has changed the trajectory of her life. The other thing that I do, you know when you go out to eat and the waiter or the waitress comes and 
set your food down. What do they always say? They always say the same thing. Is there anything else I can get you? Now, when they say that to me, my response is always, no, there's nothing you can get me, but is there one thing that we can pray for you about? Well, there's a restaurant near Rose office that I go to a lot. The, the food actually isn't very good, but it's a, it's a quiet place where I can have a conversation or a meeting, so I go there a lot. Well, I was there with my friend Dean, and we were having lunch. We had ordered our food. We were sitting in our booth. The waitress came, sat the food down, and she kind of turned quickly away. And as she was walking away, she said, is there anything else I can get you? I said, wait a minute, Lisa, there's nothing you can get us, but is there one thing that we can pray for you about? Well, she turned on her heels, and she pointed at me. She said, how did you know to say that? I said, how did I know to say what? She said, how did you know to ask me if I needed prayer? Because as I was getting ready for work this morning, my 17-year-old daughter and I had the worst fight we've ever had. And she stormed out of the house. She told me she never wants to see me again. As I was driving to work, my mother called me. She told me that she's got stage 4 breast cancer and that she has to start chemo and radiation treatments. And mister, I don't know if prayer really works, but yeah, I would like you to pray for me. So Lisa sat down in our booth. I took a hand, Dean took a hand, and we prayed for her. We prayed for her mother, for her daughter, for her relationships. And I don't know whatever happened to Lisa. She doesn't work at that restaurant anymore. But what I do know is for the next five or six times, every time I would come to that restaurant, she would see me from across the way, and she would rush to finish up whatever she was working on and come over and take my order because she began to have the expectation that when she brought the food, we were going to invite her to pray. And after three or four times, she would actually get to the point where she would bring the food, set it down on the table, put her butt in the booth, and just start praying it up. Divine appointment, obedient response, and God handles the results. So I'm going to ask you the kind of awkward question again. What's your divine appointment? You know, I don't know what that might be. I've just met a lot of you this morning. Some of you I met a year ago when I was here. I have no clue what the divine appointment of your life might be. But I have an inkling you may know. And I know that God knows. And I know for sure that if you're willing to be courageous and bold enough to reach out into the lives of friends and co-workers, family, restaurant and hotel staff, that God will walk alongside you and that he'll be with you the rest of the way. And for that, I'm grateful, and I hope you are. Let's pray together. Gracious God, I thank you for this church. It is a church that has been under leadership that is drawing these people to your heart and giving them the courage and the boldness to actually do something about that. And so I pray that we as a church would be responsive to your call on our lives. Just less than a month ago, we celebrated Easter, the most important day of our lives and the greatest celebration of a relationship that we have that we don't deserve. And I pray that you would impress on each of us, even now as we pray, the people in our lives that we just need to walk alongside and to love in the name of Jesus. They might be right here in Huntsville. They might be around the state or around the country or maybe even around the world. And what you ask from us is obedience and courage 
and boldness which we receive through your Holy Spirit. And we receive that now in the name of Christ and all God's mission-minded people said, Amen.